This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. I want to touch on another area uh, called marriage, Luther's marriage. Uh, I hope you not that you do not think me overly sentimental at this point. Uh, The fact of the matter is that Luther not only affected a theological reformation, but he also affected a revolution in family life. This is one dimension of Luther's importance that is not often appreciated. But Luther was a major force in a complete overhaul of the concept of marriage. For a thousand years before Luther, the single celibate life was upheld as the Christian ideal. If you really want to be a really righteous person, if you want to get really close to God, then you cannot get married. You must remain single and celibate. Marriage was a hindrance to true spirituality. That was the norm for a thousand since Augustine. We love Augustine, but Augustine was a little mixed up, I think, when it comes to some of these kinds of ideas about marriage. Uh, bless his heart. I, I understand the trials and, and difficulties he had, but I think he overreacted. Uh, but he set this model in motion. Perhaps, I don't think he's the, the only one, but, but he was a major force in perpetuating this idea of the single celibate life as the ideal for Christianity. One of the great uh, citations comes from Jerome, who was a contemporary of Augustine's. And he gave a numerical value to virginity, widowhood, and marriage. Virginity rates a hundred on a scale of a hundred. Widowhood rates a 60. Marriage rates a 30. Now that gives you some sense about the mentality that was prevailing for a thousand years before Luther. And then comes Luther. Luther comes along and he exalts marriage and family life. He says it's right and good and you can be spiritual all at the same time. Remarkable transformation. In many ways, the revolution that Luther affected here was as great 
as the theological revolution that he brought about in terms of faith and works and sacraments and all of those kinds of things. So we owe Luther a great sociological kind of debt, not just theological, although I think there's certain overlap here. But uh, the family and marriage was something that he really, really exalted. Uh, He was the guy who, in the 1520s, was encouraging monks and nuns to abandon their vows and to flee the monasteries and the nunneries. This will have tremendous impact in his own life. Now, what's interesting about Luther is, although he was advocating marriage for everyone else, for him, he didn't need it. He wasn't interested in marriage. So he said. And then along came Katie Von Bora. And she snagged her man and married him on 13 June 1525 at about 5 p.m. June 13, 1525. My brother's birthday. June 13, 1525, around 5 p.m. I just, I like to be precise. We know. So... <laughs> Luther's marriage, as you might guess, in light of this this context where marriage was downplayed in terms of spirituality, was considered a scandal, certainly by Roman Catholics. But what's terribly interesting is that it was considered a scandal by many of his colleagues when he, the great Luther, capitulated and uh, entered into holy matrimony. Melanchthon in particular, his closest friend, his closest ally, opposed (coughs) Luther's marriage. He felt that this was somehow hurt the cause of the Reformation, that Luther would be a laughingstock and a scandal, and that people would laugh at the Reformers. The fear was that people would, would think that, well, the only reason Luther really went ahead with this Reformation business was so he could get himself a wife. And in fact, you will find, you will find that in the Roman Catholic interpretations of Luther, all the way up to, oh, around the 40s, 50s of this century, one of the prevailing interpretations of Luther and why the Reformation came about was lust. That Luther simply wanted to get married and that's why he perpetuated and he led this thing called the Reformation. It was purely motivated by his desire for a wife. Melanchthon wrote negatively about Luther's marriage and he said, if this man, Luther, takes a wife, the whole world will laugh right along with the devil, who will then destroy everything he has accomplished. So Melanchthon was concerned that if Luther gets married, it could destroy the Reformation. Now, well, it's very much changed. Uh, 
Joseph Lortz, back in 1940-something, wrote a book on the... A Catholic theologian, Catholic historian, wrote a book called The Reformation uh, back in the 40s. And in it, he really takes to task uh, the previous Roman Catholic interpretations of Luther, feeling that they were really uh, personal uh, kind of assaults on Luther's character. And he says, you know, you've got to take Luther seriously. You can't just take these ad hominem kinds of arguments against Luther. So he criticizes the entirety of Roman Catholic interpretation of Luther and says, now, I don't agree with Luther. I think Luther was wrong theologically. But we, we accomplish our task not by impugning his character, but by challenging his theology. And so ever since Lortz in particular there has been a real movement away by most Roman Catholic historians. And their, their problem now with Luther is not so much uh, the fact that he got married, but the problem is uh, the, his theology. And you can find even further development uh, as of about 1960, 70 with uh, Hans Kung. And Hans Kung, although he's still on the fringes of Orthodox Roman Catholicism, he just felt that even Luther's doctrine was not in substance really different from uh, Luther. Luther's was different from Catholicism, just a matter of semantics. Now, most folks uh, would say that's not a very accurate uh, judgment. But uh, there are some what I would call fringe uh, Roman Catholic theologians uh, who follow Kung and uh, said that that's, that's really outrageous. And I, I agree with his critics on that point. And he was operating from a, a Bartian perspective, and he was trying to reinterpret Luther and Roman Catholicism in terms of Bartianism. So there are a lot of com complications there. But you do find that the Roman Catholic perceptions of Luther have dramatically changed in the last 50 years. Uh, he is uh, now mistaken theologically, uh, but he, his character is not, his sincerity is not nearly as often impugned. So, well, uh, you, you can imagine the kind of scandal that, that this must have been, both from some of his closest friends as well as uh, from Roman Catholic perspective. What's interesting is that as late as November the 30th, 1524, we're talking about six or seven months before he got married, Luther wrote a friend expressly stating, I have no interest or intention in marriage, to get married. November 30th, 1524. Here's what happened in those six months. Now, Catherine von Bora. You can't sit. Katie von Bora. She had been placed in a nunnery in Nimshen, N-I-M-B-S-C-H-E-N, N-I-M-B-S-C-H-E-N, a Cistercian nunnery near Leipzig. A Cistercian, I think I spell that, C-I-S-T-E-R-C-I-A-N, near Leipzig. And sometime around 1522, remember Luther had written this book, I mentioned it just in passing, he wrote a book on monastic vows in 1522. Widely circulated. Well, some of these nuns in this Cistercian monastery, uh, nunnery 
read Luther's book on monastic vows in around 1522. And they were persuaded that Luther was right. Now, they stayed for a while. But over a period of time, reading secretly this writing, among other things, uh, a number of the nuns at this Cistercian nunnery decided that they no longer believed in the teachings of Rome and that they wanted out of their vows. Nine of these nuns, including Katie von Bora, decided that they were going to escape from the nunnery and to abandon their vows. First, they turned to their families. Mom, Dad, come get me. All of them received a no. Uh, the parents, the families would not come to the rescue of these ladies. Uh, and so these nine nuns got word to Luther. He was their last best hope to escape the nunnery. And Luther came to the rescue of these nine Cistercian nuns. A question? Comment? Uh, still disguised as a knight. No, it is no. no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fine. That's right. Yeah, uh, he was there for 18 months, and then he came, went back to uh, Wittenberg, has shaved off his beard, and he's Luther again. Okay, so he doesn't fear for his life, perhaps, as greatly. Well, he is defying the ban on him. On him. I mean, he. There is. Uh, uh, a price on his head, but he knows he has the protection of Frederick the Wise. Uh, he is taking an enormous risk without question, but he felt like that the Reformation needed his guidance and his leadership. Some extremists had come into Wittenberg in his absence, and some things were happening too radical for his tastes. So he came back and he felt that it just he had to take the, the risk. I didn't think he was going to you know, walk around wearing a brown shirt. No, that's fine. That's that's Tim. That's fine. Uh, so Luther comes up with a plan. Bear in mind now that the legal penalty for abducting a nun is the death penalty. Okay, so we're not talking about you know a, a panty raid on a sorority. Okay. <laughs> You know, I, I shouldn't have said that. Okay? We're not talking about something on that level. Uh, we're talking about something that involves the death penalty. Lim, can you probably erase that little that little bit for me? Sometime? So we're talking fairly serious business. Uh, so Luther comes up with a plan. Now, he discovered that the local delivery man a man named Leonard Kopp, K-O-P-P-E. Leonard uh, delivered herring to the nunnery. And Luther enlisted the support. Apparently, Kopp was a Lutheran, sympathetic at least. And he enlisted Leonard to come and to help him smuggle out these nine nuns. And so one evening, he has a delivery of herring 
And so he has some empty herring barrels. Legend has it that the nine nuns quickly and under the, the cloak of darkness scampered out and hid inside these herring barrels. No wonder it was so hard for Luther to find husbands for these ladies. They didn't smell all that great. But anyway, that's the story. And Leonard Kopp then brings these fine-smelling ladies to Wittenberg. And now, of course, it's Luther's job to find husbands for them. You talk about a man who is diverse in talents, a great theologian, uh, but he also is something of a matchmaker, in, at least in this instance. And he's remarkably successful. He finds pretty quickly husbands for eight of these nine smelly nuns. <laughs> Everyone except Katie Von Bora. Now, he had tried very hard to get her hooked up. Initially, he thought he had a match for Katie. She had, in fact, fallen in love with a guy with an extraordinary name, Hieronymus Baumgartner. That was his name. You might want to write that down. B-A-U-M-G-A-R-T-N-E-R. Hieronymus Baumgartner. Well, things initially seemed to be... There were some sparks there between Hieronymus and Katie. And Luther did everything he could to encourage it. There's only one problem. Hieronymus's family. They had reservations about their son marrying a runaway nun. In fact, he left town uh, at the instigation of his parents... And we actually have a letter written from Luther to Hieronymus encouraging him to come back and to marry Katie von Bora. Luther writes, If you want to hold on to Katie von Bora, you better hurry before she's given to someone else. She has not yet gotten over her love for you. It would make me very happy to see the two of you united. Quite a matchmaker. But it was not to be. One of the funny little tidbits is that later on after they're married, Luther used to tease Katie about Hieronymus Baumgartner, her first love. At any rate, Luther then uh, is about his task of matchmaking. He's trying to get Hieronymus together. That doesn't work out. And so he tries to hook her up with a very distinguished man in Wittenberg, the rector of the University of Wittenberg, Dr. Kaspar Glatz, G-L-A-T-Z, Glatz, rector of the University of Wittenberg. But there were no sparks for Katie. She didn't like this old bird. So she went to one of the leaders, one of Luther's closest friends, Nicholas von, von Amsdorf. Nicholas von Amsdorf. And she says, Nick, I don't want to marry old Dr. Glatz, but I'll make a deal with you. I'll marry either you or Luther himself. 
but I won't marry old Dr. Glatz. Well, Amsdorf wasn't interested. So he dropped the hint to Luther. Now, Luther, on his part, he seems to have been attracted to, to one of the other nuns, but since she was married, there wasn't any possibility there. And for Katie, he kind of thought, he thought, well, she's a rather arrogant young lady. So he wasn't immediately attracted to her. But he wrote later, God wanted me to take pity on her. And so Luther took pity on this poor lass who couldn't find a husband. And so they were married in June of 1525. Now get this little note that Luther wrote on his wedding invitation to Amsdorf. This is normally not the way marriages begin, but it gives you some idea of the way in which Luther went into this marriage. Quote, writing to Amsdorf on the wedding invitation, I feel neither passionate love nor burning for my spouse, but I cherish her. So, Luther is, is uh, going into this with a sense of duty, a sense of obligation. He's been telling everybody else it's okay to get married, and so now it's sort of caught up with him, this advice. And since he can't marry off to anybody else, and boy, has he tried. He's stuck with this arrogant runaway nun. And so he decides, well, I'll do my duty. I'll marry her. Takes pity on her. Uh, later, he writes about this. He says, Suddenly, unexpectedly, and while my mind was on other matters, the Lord snared me with the yoke of matrimony. Another time, no doubt inspired by some good German beer, he once said that the reason he married Katie was to please his father, to rile the Pope, to make the angels laugh and the devils weep. Really, a really romantic kind of guy. The fact of the matter is, it wasn't long before Luther realized how much he really loved Katie. It was a wonderful, deep, humorous marriage. Full of laughter, full of uh, enjoyment of each other. It was a class A marriage. Produced six children. And Luther, it turns out, was a pretty good dad. He was one of those kinds of guys who seemed to be able to hold a, a, a theology book open while five or six kids were playing at his feet. Uh, I find that a, a little <coughs> difficult. But Luther was, was the, the sort of guy who was just, he could do all that. Uh, and he did have lots of kids around him uh, while he was studying. And he still uh, produced massive works even as a dad with, with growing children in his home. Uh, remarkable, remarkable achievement. Very early on, it's clear that Luther found marriage to Katie von Bora deeply satisfying. Some comments that he wrote, that he made about his marriage to Katie. He says, quote, I would not give up my Katie for France or Venice because God gave her to me and me to her. 
Another quote. I love my Katie. Yes, I love her more dearly than myself. That is certainly true. Again, Katie, you have a devout husband who loves you. You are an empress. A little change in perspective. Uh, And I think one can see how his relationship with Katie has changed. He may have gone into the marriage with with less than... than, uh, uh, romantic notions, but it wasn't very long before uh, this marriage really changed him. How old was Katie when she married him? Early twenties. Mid thirties. A fourteen eighty three to fifteen twenty five. Yeah. So he's 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 not a youngster, late thirties, early forties. I can't. I'm not, I'm not very good at him. Anyway, the marriage was interesting because <clears throat> Luther was absolutely inept at finances. He was a kind of guy who, if someone was in need in Wittenberg, there's one story in which he took some silver wedding candles given to them by Frederick the Wise, very expensive. And he heard that somebody was in need or they came to him. He just took them out off the shelf and gave them to them. A few days later, Katie comes along and says, Did, didn't we have something very nice, some, some silver candlesticks? And he says, well, yeah, I, I, I gave those away. <laughs> you know, Katie was not real keen on, on, on his generosity. Uh, but he just he just didn't think... And one wonders how he would have survived without her. She juggled the finances, did all kinds of things to keep them afloat financially. Uh, She remodeled the cloister. The city gave him the old Augustinian cloister that it now didn't have any more monks. It was given to Luther. So that he could have, he could take in boarders. And Luther lived with about 30 students. Can you imagine that? And guess who fed them and took care of them? Katie. She was a gardener, and so she had fresh fruit and vegetables because she cultivated a garden. Uh, She also owned her own brewery. Now there's a wife. (laughs) She also at one point inherited her uncle, I believe it was her uncle's pig farm. And uh, she ran that from a distance uh, with livestock and so forth. In fact, you find Luther writing letters to Katie calling her Katie, queen of the pig farm, because she had this inheritance and uh, ran it as well. So she was extraordinary. She was really an extraordinary wife. And if it weren't for her, one wonders how successful Luther would have been. Anyway, she was also a very strong-willed lady. She was not a real passive kind of wife. Uh, there are times when uh, Luther calls her Lord Katie. <laughs> Sometimes he called her, quote, my master and Moses Katie. Uh, so he, he realized that there were times when she, she wrapped him on the knuckles, and, and, and he deserved it, to be sure. Six children, Hans, Elizabeth, Magdalena, Martin, Paul, and Marguerite. Get up. I'm just 
mentioning those. Did this all take place in Wittenberg? In Wittenberg, that's right. Is he still at the university? Yes, he's still teaching theology. One of the great tragedies in Luther's life was the death of his 13-year-old daughter, Magdalena. Of all of his six children, she seems to have been the one most spiritually minded as a young child. And I don't recall exactly what it was, uh, the cause of her death, but what I am clear about is that at her funeral, Luther was completely undone. He sobbed openly about the loss of his daughter Magdalena. He loved her with, a, with an extraordinary passion. And, uh, some sort of fever. But there, I mean, there's even the story where as she lay dying, Luther went to her uh, and he knew she was dying. And he said, uh, Magdalena, are you ready to go home to your father in heaven? And she very strongly said, yes, of course I am. And Luther is reported to have just wept at that moment because he knew she gave the right answer, but it meant for him great pain at loss, at her loss. He later said, God has a right to take my daughter to heaven. But, quote, in my heart, I would gladly have kept her here with me. So he was torn with acknowledging the sovereign right of his Father in heaven to take his precious daughter, but it hurt like the dickens. So he had to wrestle with that. Uh, Luther died in 1546, and the end of the story, the end of the marriage, is, is somewhat sad because after Luther died in 46, Lutheranism was uh, underwent some travail <clears throat> with the leader, loss of the great leader, and Katie herself uh, didn't have the easiest life in the six and a half years that she lived after Luther's death. They were hard ones for her. There was war uh, in Germany. Uh, there were trials for her. And she died in 1552 in sort of a, a tragic way. The plague had come to Wittenberg and she, like so many others, fled the city to go to the country. And as she was fleeing, she was sitting in the wagon and she hit a bump and she, and she fell out and hit her head on a rock and lingered on for a while and then finally died. But sort of an ignoble um, kind of death. At any rate, uh, that was her death in 1552. Luther once wrote, Oh, what a truly noble, important, and blessed condition the estate of marriage is. So here you have a guy who uh, not only led a theological, doctrinal reformation, but here's a man who led a reformation in terms of the family. So June 13, 1525 is a significant date in the history of marriage. Any questions about Luther's marriage? Uh, I really do think that's a... There's been much time on it, but it is, it's worthwhile simply noting <coughs> Luther's broader significance than just theology. Don't ever make anyone an absolute hero, because there are none.
Luther has some uh, unfortunate, what I call, blots on his character. Uh, things that uh, my best guess is will trouble you a little bit. They should. But I think there's a, there's a great moral in, in all of this to be reminded that we dare not exalt anyone too highly. Luther was a great man, to be sure. And I think he can function as, as a hero in many respects. But let's be realistic. Uh, I, my fear is that so often in evangelical seminaries, we're all good conservatives, right? And we try to make sure everybody is sort of pristine and shiny clean. Well, I'm not quite like that. Uh, I want to make sure that we know have a broad sense of who Luther was, the good and the bad. And there is some bad things that will, as I say, will probably trouble you. And I feel duty-bound to mention them to you so there will be no exaltation of Luther. When I was uh, in Texas, uh, I worked one summer at SMU Law School uh, in the library. And I became pretty good friends with uh, the reference librarian. And he knew, he, I don't know if he was a, I don't think he was a Christian, but he always talked, he and I talked theology and this kind of thing. And one day he said, come here, I want to show you something. So I went into his office and I sat down. He said, I want you to listen to this. And he began reading a passage and it was so filled with hatred and venom against the Jews. I mean, it was savage. And he said to me, who do you think wrote that? I said, Hitler, of course. He said, no, it was your Luther. And I sat there dumbfounded. He was right. <coughs> Very powerful language from Luther with regard to the Jews. He wrote a book in the 1540s entitled On the Jews and Their Lies. Listen to what Luther said to the German people and what they ought to do to the Jews. First, Set fire to their synagogues and schools. Burn them down. Secondly, Jewish homes should be burned down. All Jewish Thirdly, all Jewish religious writings should be confiscated from the owners. Jewish religious writings should be confiscated. Fourth, all rabbis should be forbidden to teach on penalty of death. If they are caught teaching, preaching, they should be put to the sword. Fifth, all Jewish property should be confiscated from them.
And last but not least, Jews should become the slaves of Germans, the servants of Germans. You will not be the first to uh, note a connection, an ideological connection. So this is the great Luther, the great anti-Semite, anti-Semite. Let me try to put this in context. By putting it in context, in no way alleviates the tension. It just helps clarify the context. This is not uh, a defense of Luther. I wouldn't dare such a thing at this point. The fact of the matter is, is that early on during the Reformation period, Luther was something of an advocate for the Jews. He encouraged Germans to treat Jews with respect and to permit them to integrate into German society. As you're probably aware, there's always, there's always been a fair amount of anti-Semitism throughout Europe. Uh, always these caricatures uh, that's, that are still with us today were prevalent in the Middle Ages. Uh, so there was a certain amount of, of bias toward Jews. And Luther is something of a, of a liberal early on by saying, let's be friends with the Jewish people. Let's integrate them into society. But here's why Luther wanted to do that. Luther had one goal behind this sort of liberal social policy. And the purpose was to evangelize them and to win them to Christ. That was the main reason behind his liberal social policy at this early stage in his uh, Protestant career. But what he found out in the 1540s, or it seemed to him toward the end of his life, that the Jews had not converted. There had not been any significant <coughs> conversions of Jews to Christianity, and certainly not to Lutheranism. And Luther was convinced that they were stubborn and arrogant and that they had blasphemed against Christ by rejecting the gospel. And that he, out of the kindness of his heart, had taken this liberal social policy and for him they had spat in his face by not accepting Christ. And so he reacted with a vengeance. The old Luther, I think I've mentioned this before, got very cantankerous, uh, very <coughs> agitated, uh, was uh, liable to go to extreme on occasion. And what's interesting is that even his, his, so his closest friends said, Luther, this is too strong. Don't, don't say these things. Luther dismissed them and said, it's what I believe. and I'm going to publish it. I'm going to write it for everybody to see. Luther was the kind of guy that once he got up ahead of steam, you better not get in the way or he's going to run right over you. And that was especially true as he got older. Uh, again, no excuses offered for Luther. But to put it into context, 
Here's a man who is surely burdened with the Reformation. I mean, he's the one who has the responsibility not only to define its theology, which he certainly did, but he's, he's a matchmaker. He's a guy who's going from town to town to solve little disputes. Right enough, he died going to settle a dispute in another church some, some miles away. Here's a guy who, who, is, who is literally burning out for God because he's working so very, very hard. That's true. And he didn't have time to listen to reason at this point. Uh, and he didn't. He was self-confident, and I'd be willing to suggest that perhaps he was rather arrogant and in his own judgment here. Harsh as well. Was Luther anti-Semitic? Well, I think you probably could make a very good case that he was. Uh, he was a man of his times. He did not transcend them entirely. Uh, the other thing I would add is it's not clear if, if the motivation, if his, if his anti-Semitism was motivated racially or was it primarily a theological racism? That is, he was against this race because of their overwhelming rejection of Christ, because of their what he would he considered blasphemy. I dare my my best guess is it's very difficult to separate one from the other for Luther. I suspect he was a man of his times, and that the mere fact that they were Jews. Uh, was a problem to him. Were there other writings of other people similarly? Uh, yes, I, I'm, I'm not a great expert on, on anti-Semitism in the 16th century. If you're interested in pursuing that, uh, Heiko Obermann has written a book on anti-Semitism in this period. It's very striking <coughs> and, and disturbing. Uh, you will find that there were others... But it's different when they do it than when Luther does it. Luther is somebody that when he speaks, people listen. Uh, he has a credibility that no one else had at that time. Uh, I read in Luther's table talk that he, he wrote that uh, or said that he did always felt that he did his best teaching, preaching, and his best writing when he was angry, <laughs> really angry. Do you think that anger has a part to play in that? And as far as being so angry that he wasn't really, you know what I'm saying? The yeah. Affected what he was saying about the Jews. And, and yeah. Well, you know, I mean, that's. I mean, you asked me to do a little psychoanalysis here, yeah. and uh, you know, I, I suspect that sometimes anger sharpens your mind. I can conceive of that. I mean. Uh, you look at controversies in history, and when somebody is passionate about that, sometimes they ha in wonderful insights come in your anger against the bad guys. Uh, I don't have any doubt about that. And so there's probably there's a lot of truth in that. But I think that there are also other times when your anger can blind you, that, blind, that there's, there is such a thing as blind rage. And I suspect that uh, in his old age... Uh, it got the best of him, and he and the fact that he was a man of his times. 
uh, is manifested here. And you couple that with anger and arrogance and overwork and uh, illness. <laughs> you know, he had gout. Uh, and uh, it hurt. And so you, you combine all those kinds of things and you get a cantankerous guy. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.